podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning to you, dear listener. Welcome to the TMBA pod. Today's episode is a response podcast. So last week, I was listening to Tim Ferriss's podcast, and as usual, my ears pricked up at the start of a recent show that's titled The 4-Hour Workweek Revisited. I'm always curious as to what Tim's thoughts are on business, and especially his seminal work, his best book, which is now a decade old and has been an incredible influence on so many in our community, easily the most influential book in the location-independent entrepreneurship world. And because of its prominence, specifically because of it, and it's worth talking about, it's received a lot of criticisms too, many of which Tim addressed in his most recent podcast, which we're going to link to in our show notes, which are going to be at tropicalmba.com slash critique. So after listening to this episode, I just felt like I needed to get on the phone and talk with somebody about the ideas in the book and how it's looked at 10 years down the line. So I jumped on Skype, gave Bossman a call, and we're going to roll that conversation now. I see this life like a swinging vine, swing my heart across the line, and my face is flashing signs, seek it out and ye shall find... Ian, if you were to guess, what percentage of TMBA listeners do you think have read this book? A lot more than haven't. So this episode, I think there's still value in here if you haven't read the book. But recently, we were listening to Tim Ferriss's podcast, and he put up an episode that was like, 10 years later, here are my reflections on the book. So I thought it would be cool if we did something similar here, Ian, and we did sort of five hot takes, five perspectives or insights or stories that we want to share about the four-hour work week from our observations after sort of been uh, crash test dummies in the four-hour workweek lifestyle over the last decade. So before we get into the, the hot takes, Ian, one thing I thought was interesting that I've never heard Tim address was the tone of the book. There are parts of it that make me cringe a little bit. Not that I regret having written it the way I wrote it, but the 29-year-old Tim Ferriss felt like he had a lot to prove. I was very much myself at the time. And myself at the time had a a bit of chest puffing, very hyper aggressive. And looking back, if I were to edit the book now, it would have a very different voice. But the four hour work week now has been translated into more than 40 languages. It is almost always in the top 100, top 200 on Amazon. And there's a certain, for lack of a better word, there's certain magic or alchemy in that book that made it click and still makes it click 10 years later that I don't want to fuck with. And I thought he was, he was cool about it. He, he basically said, look, I was like 29 and I had a lot to prove. If you're reading it today and that grates on you, just I promise if you get past that, then you'll get value from the book. And that resonated with me because that was always my perspective too. Like it's definitely written insistently, sort of like a sales letter, sort of like, you know, you got to do this. It's a shame that that tone would keep people away from learning 
the concepts in the book? Well, certainly it didn't keep a lot of people away because it's the most highlighted book still in Amazon in 2017. So, you know, despite its tone, it worked. So let's get started without further ado with our five hot takes. So first one, Ian, I'll send it to you. Why do people still talk about this book so much? We all kind of had these ideas. We all were starting to run these businesses back then. And it gave us permission, honestly. I mean, you read the book and you thought like, okay, I didn't know some of this stuff, but I was feeling a lot of this stuff. And now I feel like because it's been validated in this book by this guy that I've never heard of until now, I somehow have permission now. I somehow feel better about my path forward because this is uh, now published work. At least that's the way that I felt. I was talking with Bo Burlingham the other week, Ian. He was a writer for Inc. Magazine. And his theory about popular books is that they say something to you that you believe to be true, that you're a little bit scared to express. Yeah. And you're like, oh my gosh, this person believes that too. Exactly. And so it, it validates your secret desire. And my secret desire was to quit my job and travel. It really was. I mean, it's just that simple. I mean, it's not like I wanted to be like a professional traveler or something. I just like really wanted to see the world. I had this secret desire and reading this book validated it. And Tim tells the story of like, you know, this career that you're locked into, it doesn't make any sense. And like all these technologies that you're using to like work extra hours, they can be used to unlock your potential as well. Our friend and author, Taylor Pearson, who in some ways wrote the follow-up, a follow-up book to the four-hour work we called The End of Jobs, which I recommend. He said, don't look at what a book says, look at what it whispers. And so in some ways, like you can take the four-hour work week like word for word, work less, be more effective, automate yourself, liberate yourself, define your fears, you know, eliminate distractions. But the reality is to me what the four-hour work week said was, go ahead and quit your job. You're going to be fine. It's okay, Dan. All right, boss man, our second hot take is one of yours. And this one is a, I wouldn't say critical, but it's definitely challenging some of, the, of Tim's reflections. So there was a discussion in the podcast about, did it make any sense to go back and rewrite the four-hour work week to like sort of brush it up for 2017? And your hot take is, Tim can't go back and rewrite the book because he's not living it. What do you mean by that? One of the things that I didn't know that came out in his episode was that he wrote this as a very personal letter to two of his friends and to himself. The first attempt failed completely. I had four or five chapters that were very academic. I was trying very hard to sound smart. And not to say I never do that now, but it was really awful to read. So I sat down and actually opened up a window to compose an email and started, as a first draft at least, writing a chapter to two of my friends. One who was trapped in a company of his own making, and then another friend who was working at a bank and was becoming a victim of his own success. He had no time and was deciding to increase his burn rate, buy things he didn't need to justify how much time he spent working. Felt similarly trapped. And these were guys around my age at the time, 29 or so, 29, 30. And I knew them really well because I was effectively them. I mean, we had so much shared experience, so much shared DNA. 
And so I've, I wrote a very, very personal book, ultimately, with two friends in mind. And I think that that makes a ton of sense. Uh, you know, when I'm writing, I do that a lot of times, too. You know, I think of like one or two people that I have in mind, and I like write that blog post to them. It just makes it much easier for me to kind of envision the problem and the solution. That's why the book was in some ways so powerful. But I guess what Tim was saying was people are asking him to go back and rewrite the book. And he's saying, like, look, a lot of the tools are outdated, but that doesn't matter. Like, if you have the skill sets, like, you'll find the new tools. That's probably true. But what I think I disagree with a little bit is that this lifestyle has evolved, I think, a lot since 2007. Like, yes, the tools have changed. Unfortunately, we're still using Skype, but (laughs) (laughs) a lot of the other tools have changed. But fundamentally, the ways that people are building these businesses and the reasons they're building them and the way that they're doing things is, is fundamentally different, I think, than the way that it was portrayed in the book here in 2018. We're going to get to the strategic point later on. So why some of the strategies and principles of the book may actually have changed if you were to write them in 2017. But I think you're saying something different here, which is that part of the magic, and, and Tim called it, I think you might have called it magic, like there's something about this book, you know, that was special. Part of it was it was his testimony to his best friends. You know, he wasn't saying, I went out and interviewed 25 of the smartest entrepreneurs in the world. Here's what I learned from them. The tone of the book is he's writing to his best friend who has like worked his whole life for this career that he thought was going to be great. And he ended up having golden handcuffs. And he said, there's a new way. Look at what I'm doing. This is the path. Here's how you do it. This is me. You know, I'm living it through and through. And I want you to join me because I feel your pain right now. You know, jobs suck. Quit your job and travel the world. That's the magic. (laughs) You know, that's why it's like the good with the bad. You know, you have that insistent tone. It's like, man, get out there in the world and do your own thing, you know, and be smart about it. Yeah, the magic was that he was actually living it. And I think what you alluded to, which is kind of his new approach, for better or for worse, is to simply find experts and mine them for information. But that's the reason, and my guess is, I don't know his stats, but that's the reason why The 4-Hour Workweek is the most successful book that he's ever written, is because it was actually his unique perspective and his unique experience. It wasn't just asking other people, right? It was real. Remember when he was like laying into the fat guy in the BMW? You know, he was like picking a fight. He was authentic and it wasn't a business book. He wasn't saying like, here's how to grow a great business, right? It was like a life philosophy book. It was a book that challenged the notion of a career. He was fighting for that himself to maintain it. You know, I'm never going to go back to career and you should get rid of yours too. And there was something magical about that intensity to that. Today's show is sponsored by Empire Flippers. They're the leading specialists in helping entrepreneurs buy, sell, and invest in online businesses. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, Empire Flippers integrated, dedicated teams make sure that you're supported at every stage in the process. And they have a huge audience and great contacts in the industry. So for sellers, you're going to secure a higher price than if you were to sell privately. And if you're a buyer, they're going to save you a ton of time and money by carefully vetting all the businesses on their marketplace. 
So whether you're looking to buy or sell anything from $20,000 up to seven figures, check out empireflippers.com slash TMBA. And if you go there, you can save yourself 300 bucks. That's because today for TMBA listeners, the Empire Flippers have offered a free business valuation, which normally costs $300. So if you're looking to acquire a business, new offerings are posted every Monday morning. So that's empireflippers.com slash TMBA. And a huge thanks to the team over at Empire Flippers for supporting the TMBA podcast. Hot take number three. Everybody ought to take the fill in the void chapter more seriously. But to date, nobody can figure out how. And Tim had an interesting discussion about this. And I just wanted to piggyback our takes on this idea. This relates to a common misconception of the four-hour work week, which is, oh, the objective is to just sit on a beach, sipping a pina colada, rubbing cocoa butter on your stomach for the rest of your life, or somehow being idle. The objective is to whatever, just live spring break 24-7 for the rest of your life. And the people who lodge that complaint, A, haven't read the book. They very specifically have missed this filling the void chapter, which talks about contribution, getting outside of a me, me, me focus so that you're hopefully putting a positive dent in the world. I think I would expand that and make it clearer that that is mandatory reading. Well, let's just explain what filling the void means. Essentially, filling the void is this amazing time, although it sounds awful, where your business is doing so well, you've automated so many of your processes that you're sitting there with nothing to do. It's my tie in the beach, right? That's all you do in your business is win, win, win. And then you sit down in your armchair and you think, I'm not winning right now. How can I be winning right now? This isn't fulfilling. There's so much to say about this. It's hard to be convinced when all you want in the world is more freedom, flexibility in your life. You want to own your time. It's so hard to consider this idea of fulfillment and filling this void that's it's like unicorn land. You know what I mean? I'll solve it when I get to it kind of thing. Same thing that happens when people are exiting their businesses, by the way. It's like, well, what am I going to have to cry about when there's an extra commas in my bank account? What Tim says in the interview is basically like, I think a lot of people skipped over this chapter. Here's the reason why it's important. It's important to think about what you're going to do with your time once this eventually happens, once this success is essentially eminent. And I think that that's true. But the real question for me in this filling the void section of the book is like, number one, why does it happen? And number two, should you let it happen? So this is something that we talked about, Dan, which is like your career and like your life's trajectory and your life's work. Like it doesn't need to necessarily take a vacation. You know, for us, we got our business to the point before we sold it where it was like a true four hour work week business. I was working on it for four hours a week. And what did I do? Like, yeah, I was like racing cars and I was like pursuing other passions and interests. And so that was like kind of my version for filling the void. But none of my like insecurities really went away you know, in terms of like the business and like the things that I was worried about. I was actually probably more worried about it because I was filling my time with other things and I wasn't focusing on the business. So having a career is not just about making money. It's an entire identity. Regardless of how ambivalent you are about that career, it gives you a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, camaraderie, a tribe. It gives you a way to be of service to your community 
every single day. Okay. Now, Tim comes in and says, look, the ratio of the time you're spending on your career to the earnings you're making and like the amount of travel that you can have, it's unacceptable. So what you need to do is you need to reduce that to this super small part of your life. Essentially, you need to reduce this idea of career, which sort of gets lumped into this idea of earning, but they're very, very different. So that's one set of the problem. The other set of the problem is exactly what you were pointing to, which is passive income isn't really possible in the ways in which it's sort of suggested or intonated in the book. Like you can't just automate yourself out of a business and then like walk away from it and not worry about it. Number one. And number two, you can't have it generally speaking grow without you. It's it's gonna decay, probably. So the bigger this like void problem is you're trying to fill, the bigger your business problem is gonna grow as well. This thing that's a big thing to like constantly be like minimizing it down creates a kind of a fundamental anxiety, I think, there. It's strange, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the threat or the idea is like, oh, this thing is going to turn into your job again, which is the whole reason why you left in the first place and started this company. And so, like, that's the reason why we're trying to keep this fire kind of low to the ground is because I don't want it to burn up too high, and then it's going to take all my time and attention just like my job did. What ends up happening if you're really good at these strategies, which I think that we were, is you end up creating something that it has really great potential. And in my case, I think that I, I probably squashed it a little bit because I was so concerned with protecting myself, protecting my identity from getting wrapped up in this business again. Well, yeah, because now all of a sudden you have this value set that says, if you spend a lot of time making you know, the same amount of money, then you're essentially committing a foul. You're committing a sin for it. So I'll levy the critique of the book that I think is the most common, actually, besides the tone and the title. People are annoyed by the title. I think it's great. And I think it's totally possible, too, as you just suggested and, and proved, actually, quite successfully. The most common critique I hear is very like emotional. People say, I don't want to only work four hours a week. And Tim always kind of does this thing when people say that, like, you know, let's separate work or the things that you don't want to do to make a living. And there's some other things. But I don't know, like, that really minimizes the difficulty. The better approach is really to ask yourself, what's worth doing? What career is worth having? What business is worth running? What enterprise is worth serving? You know, It ought to give you more flexibility. It ought to give you more time and less stress. You know, We all know people who wrote a list down and said, you know, I hated in my job that I had to serve clients, so I'm never going to have clients again. I'm only going to do a business that has products. But that doesn't mean you're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, like, I'm never going to have a career again. It's okay for your business to provide you with meaning. And if you've built a business that has no meaning and the only meaning is that it provides you a shit ton of income and you only have to work on it for four hours a week, like, that's going to leave you somewhat empty. I think that that's the thing that's hard to believe is that, oh, I have this successful business that's paying me a good living. And, oh, that's a problem? Well, it can be if you're not identifying with that as good work for you. Because there's so many things that a career gives us that are bigger than just income. The idea that you're going to like run away from your business so you can like work on other aspects of your life, I think it's true. Like I've, I've done that many times. You know? I think that that's like part of becoming a well-rounded human being is like having other interests outside of your business. But I don't think it's the worst idea to have some of your ego to have some of your personality to have some of you like in your business and have that be a part of you 
Number four hot take. Some of the principles and strategies outlined in the book would change if it was written in 2017. Now, here's the reality is I think the principles like the deal, like define, eliminate, automate, liberate, you know, that framework, it's compelling. The strategies in the book, they feel doable, you know, it gets you started. And so like at that level, I don't really critique the strategies, but at the level that I do critique it, it's that it doesn't paint an accurate picture of what it takes to build an entrepreneurial skill set, build a company and sustain it. There's not a lot in the ways of accurate expectation settings in terms of that. And because of that, the strategies do change. So like, for example, yes, it is true that you can, you know, start a Facebook ads campaign or an AdWords campaign and like test a product. And yeah, it's true. Then you can like call up suppliers and you can, but ask anybody that's done that successfully and made wealth from it. And it doesn't look anything like, you know, automate it out then to one of these five companies that, you know, we should update for 2017 and then liberate yourself for a mini vacation and focus on that and then come back to it. Like, that's not how it works. Sorry. And this comes from a fundamental problem in the audience of the book, which is that, you know, I remember when this book first came out, it was like a darling of like, quote, tech titans, right? These overworked Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who had these successful businesses. And Tim was encouraging them to rethink everything because they were going for like these big valuations and to get millions and millions of dollars. And Tim's basically saying to that audience, hey, follow this framework and think about your earning potential differently, be more efficient. And you've already got everything you've ever wanted. In my mind, like for that audience, like wealthy people, basically, this book is really kind of effective out the gate. The problem really comes in when you look at people more like us who sort of aspired to this lifestyle that was presented in the book, you know, like the target audience that Tim was talking about, he mentioned in the podcast was, I believe, a banker, like an investment banker. I'm making 14 bucks an hour reading this book and I want to travel too. And like, I want to be liberated too. If I were to go back and make a second version, I would call the book The 10-Year Career. And to have a different version, if it was like two versions of the book, depending on where you're at in your career, because having that entrepreneurial skill set that not all of us are blessed with out of the womb takes a long time to develop. It takes more than a few phone calls to suppliers, you know? Yeah. And I think part of that was the tone, right? So it was like, do this, just call that supplier. Like you said, automate this or that. Like, you know, I remember showing up to a, a trade show unsolicited to like get business from these guys. I like got on a plane, like they wouldn't take my calls, you know, like I flew over there. They wouldn't take my meetings when I was there. Finally, I got to talk to somebody and like that kind of situation happened. <laughs> I don't know, in the 10 years that we owned that business, like 20 times, you know, something like that. It's never as easy, right? And so part of the tone of the book, like it kind of made those kinds of situations sound like pretty easy. But yeah, it was like starting a second career, you know, it was trying to figure out a way to make this sustainable. I wasn't an investment banker, like I wasn't blessed with a huge network, any of that stuff. It was how can I figure out from ground zero, essentially, how to get myself into this class of people that are enjoying these kinds of spoils. Yeah. And essentially, I mean, 
it's a great struggle. It's super growth. I mean, people get into entrepreneurship, they get into personal growth and, and health and like meeting great people all at the same time. You know, it's like a complete life revolution and it's really exciting, but it's one that is a grind and it takes a long time. It's, this is in many ways been the theme of our show is like, Hey, old school entrepreneurial know-how isn't going anywhere. And it's not something you can read in a book and then apply because it's not information. It's knowing how to behave. So Ian, if you were to challenge me then, and there's this kind of, I mean, the idea put forth by Tim, which I think is fair. He says, I more or less keep the fundamental assumptions and strategies and principles in place, but I'd want to change the tactics. And I can nitpick that. I think fundamentally, it's still a great book. If I were to sort of add things to it, you know, this whole category of like automation liberation, the strategies that did emerge, like building a micro multinational, building a hybrid team or distributed team, becoming an expatriate or baselining, or joining the digital nomad community, or, you know, all these sorts of things, they became strategies to build your business. You know, right now you can like get 5,000 bucks in your bank account and you can move to Chiang Mai and you can baseline, start a business, right? It's like, that's not how the book outlined it, you know, because, and by the way, like if you go to Chiang Mai, like the way it's going to work is that if you're lucky, you'll work your ass off for two or three years and something's going to start going your way. And then you're going to hope you have enough money to come home for Christmas on the holidays and hope that eventually the risk to leave your career was ultimately worth it because you built a strong network of peers and built a meaningful business. It's not call a few suppliers, automate, go learn Taekwondo. And you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's not quite that. And I think about, you know, there's this article in New York times about digital nomads. We're going to get to at the end of the episode. And a lot of this kind of critique of the digital nomad life is like, you know, you're working all the time or whatever. And I look back at like, all of our travels, and it's like, okay, we went on a few vacations, but basically everywhere we went, we went there for business. I do fundamentally believe that people that adopt this lifestyle, they do enjoy more free time. That's something that I've always absolutely admired and, and loved about it. If you meet people that actually got wealthy doing this stuff, you know, they didn't fill the void with a bunch of personal activities and own a business that made them wealth on the side that they automated successfully. They just, this is not how it works. I don't know people like that. I know people that are serious entrepreneurs. Sure, they travel. Sure, they have free time. But you know, they spend their days being serious entrepreneurs, building their businesses, and that's how it gets done. Final point. Have any other books become equally influential or nearly as influential, Bossman? Is there anything that sticks out to you as something sort of in the category of 4-Hour Workweek? Again, I think that this book was just like, Tim told like a little bit about himself and obviously he was describing his friends, but then he also gave a look into the future. I don't think he's like a fortune teller or anything like that. Like I think that this wave was crashing and he had enough insight. You ever hear the quote, like the future is unevenly distributed? Yeah. There's a great post at Almost Fearless, which outlines essentially the history of digital nomading. Tim was a very, he was experimenting with that culture in the very early days. I think that he was giving an insight into what gave a lot of people permission to go out and run their lives in a certain way. And so I think in that sense, like I haven't read too many books that have been that influential in so many people's lives. Yeah. With that respect, I think it was hugely powerful. Yeah. I'm with Amazon. I mean, I'm not surprised that this is the most highlighted book 10 years later. The fact that we're picking nits with it 
shows that it's important, you know, and that there's value in it, I think. For me, it was really cool to hear Tim's review of it and look back on it. I resonated with a lot of the things that he said. Hopefully, our, our picking nits doesn't come across as a bummer, but it's, it's in fact the opposite, that we're like so deeply engaged with so many of these ideas and people who are living them out that it's become an important conversation for us and remains one 10 years later. Hell of a thing for a business book. It really is. Hell of a thing. Ian, before we go, I want to talk to you about the New York Times real quick. I was scanning, drinking a cafe the other day, and came across the New York Times. They had a feature piece about digital nomads. When you're a digital nomad, the world is your office. What do you think of the article, Ian? The first thing I always do with these articles, (laughs) especially if it's written in the New York Times, because they've probably had, I don't know, five in the last five years or something like that, not very many, is I go to the comments. Oh, yeah. I just got, I'm fresh out of the comments, buddy, me and you both. (laughs) Yeah. Five years ago, the comments were littered with all these rich millennials, you know, parents' money, blah, blah, blah. And then every once in a while, you'd read one comment and it says, man, I've been stuck in a cubicle for 30 years. I wish that I had just like left and not subscribed to any of this. (laughs) And so anyways, that was like the first article that I read five years ago. Now, this article, for the most part, like very positive. So... I don't know if more people are adjusting to millennials living this kind of lifestyle or more of them have met them, have nephews that are them, whatever it might be. It's this future is unevenly distributed. I mean, this is going to be something of a new normal. I mean, so many people that you're going to know are going to have this opportunity to at least work remotely, but certainly this opportunity to own your own asset and like sort of be in charge of your means of production is like Seth Godin said, your laptop is like a factory on your desk. That opportunity is distributing throughout the population. So that's a change. I've noticed the same thing. So five years ago, the comment sections were quite brutal on articles like this. Now what I'm seeing in this comment section is a lot of this recognition of the void. I think a lot of people are realizing, you know, how many travel bloggers have you read that like they write the big go home article, you know? Yeah. And I think... This is a big question. Like the reality is, is that so few people are going to want to just continue to explore the world nonstop. And I thought a lot of what was written in the New York Times comment sections were really thoughtful critiques of the lifestyle. Like people saying like, look, you got to think about a community. You got to have a, a meaningful interaction with the places that you're at. The digital nomad lifestyle itself, because of that, is almost like a spinning top, you know? At some point, it needs to fall to rest somewhere. And very few, it just continued to keep going, you know? Yeah, I think that that's something that we've spent 10 years trying to figure out. (laughs) (laughs) It certainly was the case for me, Dan. You know, I feel like I've found my home for now in Texas, although I I travel quite a bit still. But this idea of community is like super paramount for me. Having a group of people around that I can depend on and that I can hang out with share time and memories with. And it's not to say that you can't do that in Bali. I certainly did that in Bali. But it's a little bit different when there are fixtures. And when you know that there is less of a chance that that person is going to wake up one morning and call you and say, hey, man, turns out I'm leaving Bali tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to Taiwan for the next whatever. It's tough. Obviously, like the appeal of living a travel lifestyle when you're young or when you're freshly fired or divorced or, you know, something bad just happened or whatever, you got paid off, 
you sold a business, there's no end to the appeal of the permanent travel lifestyle, you know, for a couple years, couple months. But what I'm seeing is the people that are more experienced that have been entrepreneurs for a long time, they have a home base and then they go on adventures from time to time or they go on really nice vacations, you know, longer term ones than would be afforded in a uh, traditional career. This stuff is difficult, Dan. There's very few constraints when you've reached a level that some of these people have reached, you know, coming from like a design background, like that was always the hardest thing was like designing without constraints. Oh yeah. It's the worst. You know, I need a couple roadblocks here. I need a couple constraints. I need a couple obstacles and then I can start, you know, kind of building my house on that. It's the same situation when you're a musician and you like get the big record contract and you walk into like the good studio, you know, and you have a hundred thousand knobs. A lot of times the first record, so much better, simple, you know, your time is limited. You get in there, you lay it down live and you get it out rather than obsessing over every single detail. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you next Thursday morning. See you then. We were just two guys talking on the phone. We'd love to hear what you thought of Tim Ferriss' review of the four-hour work week 10 years on. We'll post links to everything we discussed in today's episode at tropicalmba.com slash fourhourworkweek critique. And I think it goes without saying, whatever your opinion of the book is, I do think it's an awesome read. And if you haven't read it yet, go out and pick up a copy. It's made an incredible contribution to the community and has inspired so many people to seek out more freedom in their lives, which is something we support here at the pod. Again, that URL is tropicalmba.com slash fourhourworkweekcritique. And we will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.